continuing with chapter 6 of the Grace Upon Grace series, which I'm going to uh, hope I'm hoping to write this into a book. Actually, I'm very pleased with the uh, material here, and I'm hoping to change it to uh, a book called Grace Plus Grace. The, uh, the chapter six here is called Grace Delivered, the Church of His Grace, and we are going to skip down to point six and just uh, cover that. I don't know how much I covered that before, but I, it says, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you by Joel's people that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and I'm of Christ. Now, those represented four different emphases. Uh, it was very common in the ancient world to have discipleship, not just the Hebrew culture had discipleship, not just the church, but most ancient cultures uh, taught by a, a process of discipleship. So, uh, you know, people would be disciples of Plato or Socrates or what have you. And uh, I guess I just want to emphasize today, I, I was reading... Uh, uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology this morning on uh, the doctrines of the church. And I was just thinking how impoverished we've become by being so divided. Because when you look at all the metaphors of the church and all the images of the church, we really need to kind of, as we study scripture, uh, be enriched by understanding the different multifaceted perspectives that different groups have had on the church over the centuries. And I actually, uh, I wish I could somehow convey some of the passion and emotion I was feeling this morning because I just I actually was weeping. Uh, hopefully I won't be weeping, but I'll at least convey some passion and emotion. But uh, about uh, the church, the church is, uh, is everything. Uh, the church is, is the agent that God brings his kingdom through. Really, when we, we've been talking about how the three t delivery systems of grace, the word, the spirit, and the church are inextricably intertwined, part of the way they're inextricably intertwined is the word and the spirit have always and must always work through the church. God has chosen to do it that way. It's, we have this treasure, Paul says, in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. If you really begin to understand the depth of my sin, your sin, our sin, human sin, the, the, the amazing fact that God could bring the treasures of the purity of who he is and his word and his plan and his purpose through vessels like us is really amazing. It's, it's astounding. It's beyond. It's be, it just makes you want to worship. Because uh, if, he, if he worked directly, it would be far less impressive. He has chosen to allow us to partner with him in the things of the faith and in the things of the gospel. I, even though, as we were having a great discussion with uh, Larry and Caleb and I yesterday morning, we were sitting on the back deck at, and uh, enjoying the weather and talking about the things of the Lord. And we were, I think it was Larry was, was talking about this subject, you know, that God cares more about our sanctification, cares more about our relationship with him, he cares more about the, our intimacy and the purity of our devotion to him than he does about our vocations, our ministries. Uh, those all ministries, vocations, they come out of relationship with him. 
Um, and God does, you know, God has seven institutions that he's ordained in the earth. The self-government of a man or woman is the first one. The family is the second. The church is the third. The fourth is educational systems. The fifth is is economic systems. The sixth is media. And, uh, which, uh, and then the finally is civil governments that he's instituted among men. But the church has a role to speak to all of them. The church leads individuals to Christ and disciples them to maturity. The church, uh, hopefully prepares people to enter into the state of marriage uh, in an honorable state. Honorable people make, you know, the Bible says that marriage should be held in honorable honor among all. And I, you know, learned early in my Christian walk that the best way to do that is to make sure that honorable people enter that institution. So as, far, as much as you can grow and be discipled and the least baggage you can carry forward before you ever court and get married, the better. The church is is the agent of God, and he everything God does, he does by his Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son. If you study uh, our teachings on the baptism in the Holy Spirit, uh, the four teachings, the first two are, the first one is about the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit, and the second one's about the activity of the Holy Spirit. God the Father and God the Son are sitting in heaven. But they're not doing anything. They're not, or not doing. They're not not doing anything. In other words, they're they're doing something. They they have a purpose. They're not just up there sitting around playing ping pong or uh, things like this. They they have a purpose. They're working everything according to God's predetermined plan. And every individual hair of your head is part of God's eternal predetermined fabric that He's weaving all of history into to, to the in the end give all glory to His Son. And um, he does what he does by his spirit. But the spirit speaks the word. And the spirit and the word speak through the church. The very fact that we have Bibles is, is a result of God's word and spirit working through the church. No one here did not come to the Lord through your mother, the church, as well as your father, God. You, you know, if you read, if you picked up some tract and read it, well, some church person put that there. If you uh, started reading uh, scripture, well, who who did God give the scripture through and preserve the scriptures through for the centuries? Every everything that God does, He does through His church. So, with that in mind, let's continue to look at these twenty-one areas of restoration for that uh, we are re-examining to rediscover to restore. Isaiah 58, 12, one of the great the chapters on fasting and fasting for the right motives. One of the great promises that to those who fast and seek God for the right moment, for the through the right moment, mo, with the right motives, it's easy for me to say, uh, is that that you will be uh, called repairs of the breach, the restore of foundations. And it says, those from among you will raise up the ancient foundations. You know, the foundation of Christ and the foundations that he laid through his apostles has always been there. It's, it's got so much confusion and rubble and like a house that's been knocked down and rebuilt and knocked down uh, on it. But if we clear away the rubble, the ancient foundations are still there. And when it says those from among you, 
I believe it's the Amplified. There's only one or two, Young's Literal, there's only a couple translations that kind of uh, bring this out. But it's really saying, it's really saying those from among you, those who grow up from among you, in the sense of your spiritual sons and daughters, will restore the foundation. So uh, let's, uh, let's keep going through this. I think we had gotten to, we had covered one, two, three, and four, and then I had jumped down a little bit to seven. So I want to go back up and cover six, uh, maybe five, and then we'll see what how far we get. I want to talk about creeds. It's interesting that, uh, you know, one of the things we've chosen to do as elders in this church is change the word uh, Catholic to the word universal in the Apostles and Nicene Creed because they both talk about one holy Catholic church. And unfortunately, we're living in a time when people are so limited in their biblical vocabulary and their church history understanding and so forth that people will come here and go, oh my God, are you guys Catholic? And one of the sad realities of our day that I hope you will join me in carrying a burden for is so many of the divisions that have existed between uh, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants, uh, all kinds of Protestant splits, uh, is that people are still carrying these battles, not so much necessarily over, over ideas and truth as, as over wounds and, and history. And... Um, it is kind of an interesting fact in doing inner city ministry that most people that you minister to have had some exposure to the church and they've usually had exposure to churches that one of the things they've been thoroughly indoctrinated in is to be anti-Roman Catholic. And uh, no matter, no matter, and they usually don't even have any ideas of why. But if they perceive what you're doing to be Catholic, they don't want to partake in it. And, uh, and you just, uh, you know, hopefully we can, uh, we can kind of be careful with that so that we wait them out to come to a big, bigger understanding. But the, one of the first doctrines whenever you study the church is that there is a universal church. And the universal church exists uh, in, from God's point of view in all those uh, who have truly believed in the name of Jesus Christ and who are truly his followers and his disciples. There is not, uh, uh, in every specific local church, there might be wheat, there might be tares, but there are, uh, the, the, God knows those who are his, the Bible says, and throughout the centuries he has, uh, you know, you are brothers and sisters with uh, lots of people that are going to surprise you when you go to heaven. And, uh, you know, there's an old joke that uh, about a certain denomination who thought they were the only people and they, you know, the guy takes, uh, St. Peter's taking the guy around heaven and he sa says, here's where the Catholics are and here's where the Anglicans are and here's where the Eastern Orthodox are and here's where the Lutherans are. <laughs> of course, we'll all be one. That's, it's just a joke. But then he goes over to this other group and says, shh, you have to be quiet because they think they're the only ones here. And, uh, you know, all those who have been uh, had Christ revealed to them in such a way that their spirit has been quickened, that their faith is in his atonement, that their heart is to, to know and to follow God and, and to love righteousness are the true and true church. And that the true church is actually those who who were saved by faith before the coming of Christ, by faith in the in the promises of God toward his coming. In other words, there, you'll be sitting around the table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Elijah. Uh, that The church is one, is the people of God for all time. 
as we pointed out in earlier in this uh, series, Jesus said, I will build my church. And he's, the, in the Greek Septuagint, the Hebrew word that's, that most English Bibles translate as congregation, in the Septuagint is the same word as, as, as ecclesia, the same word as in the New Testament for church. And Jesus is just saying, you know, I through God, God the Father and God the Son, through the agency of people like Moses and Elijah and so forth, we built our called out assembly who look forward in the by faith in the promises of God. Not all those who were who were visibly Israel were truly were truly God's people, right? In the time of Christ, Jesus confronts his people and says, uh, you guys uh are uh you guys are, are um, not believing in me. You're not of your father, Abraham. You're of your father, the devil. So not, you know, the, the visible church is always local expressions, but not necessarily everyone in the visible church is truly a believer. Now, that's all just to say that the word Catholic means really that that mysterious, unified, one visible, invisible church that God knows. Does everyone follow that? Now, as to creeds, people will go, oh, my God, you guys have liturgy. You, you know, we want to just be led by the Spirit. We want no form in our worship and no structure or whatever. But the same people who say that say they want to be Bible-believing Christians. And you can't have it both ways because in the New Testament, there are several creedal statements that were, that were said on the first day of the week as the Christians came together to take the Lord's Supper to celebrate Christ's resurrection and his ascension, both of which happened on the first day of the week, to celebrate the outpouring of the Spirit in Pentecost. Uh, the Christians came together to celebrate the eighth day, which is the first day, the day of new creation. And from the earliest of times, they recited creeds. Here's one of them, 1 Timothy 6, 3.16 Paul says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. The rest is a quote that was, was spoken as part of the worship service of many early new churches. He who was revealed in the flesh, the incarnation, was vindicated by the spirit, which is the resurrection, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That was one uh, statement that early Christians said about the truths of the faith. Another one is in 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 3 through 5. And this is very important because Paul says this phrase right here, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. One of the things that scares me most about modern Christianity is the, the, the fact that most people are going to churches hoping their pastor will say something new and, and profound that they've never thought about before or never heard. But Peter says in his second epistle, three times he says that his, the laying aside of his earthly dwelling, in other words, he's about to die. He, God has shown him that his time on earth is short. He's going to be killed by Nero soon. Uh, and he says, but the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is short, so I will always be ready to remind you and then he just lists a whole bunch of the important truths that he, that, that, that he wants to remind us of. You know, what we actually come together for is to do this in remembrance of me. Our teaching is in remembrance. It's not something novel or new. It's, but I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. 
You see, I'm not teaching, hopefully, something novel and cool that Greg Weiss came up with. I hope I'm teaching what the apostles and the prophets and our Lord himself has laid down to be taught over and over and over again. And And what Paul is saying here is that he had received these facts from other Christians, even though he makes great point in Galatians and elsewhere about his being called directly by Christ, he does submit his gospel to the Jerusalem council. And uh, he, he makes it clear that his authority comes from Christ, but it's not unimportant that it be recognized by the, by the other leaders of the church in his view. And then he quotes this, this, we actually know, like, listen to a, uh, uh, the, the, a book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He brings this point out in his book that the rest of this is actually a creed that we know that within eight years, that we, it could have been earlier, but we know for sure by the time of eight years after the resurrection, the early Christians were, were saying this every week in their service. They were saying that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And it's interesting that both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, when discussing uh, Christ, uh, make clear the point that the things of Christ were according to the scriptures, by which they mean the Old Testament scriptures that gave us a map to Christ. As John made clear to us uh, in his 15-part series called Christ in the Old Testament, uh, which was just, a, as, as we made very clear, was just a little, it was like an hors d'oeuvre party for you. Uh, it wasn't a full meal of Christ in the Old Testament. It was just to, to whet your appetite, you know, true, a, true, um, a true good hors d'oeuvre party or appetizer gets you ready for the full meal. And uh, that 15-part series should begin to open your eyes that Christ is everywhere in the Old Testament. As Peter says in 1 Peter, he, it's, he says the, the prophets were searching uh, diligently for what the Spirit of Christ was in the, indicating about Christ in, the, in his sufferings and the glories to come. The, the, the spirit of prophecy, as Revelation says, is the testimony of Jesus. And so what, this, phrase, uh, this phrase that was in the first of the, of the creeds that we know for sure was said in the churches that, that Christ died for us, our sins is careful to put according to the scriptures because Psalm 22 and Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 53 and so forth and so forth over and over again, the, the Bible helps us understand that the Christ had to suffer. You remember in Luke 24, when Jesus is talking to the two on the road to Emmaus and he says, Oh, slow of heart to believe everything that was written about me in the scriptures was it not necessary for the christ to suffer to come because the jews of his day had kind of a prosperity gospel mentality where they had no room to see those who were blessed of god is struggling along they people were like well if you're of god why do you have this trouble or that trouble or you're this small group or that small group why aren't don't you have this 10 million dollar budget or you know None of that has to do with whether God is among you or not. You know, Christ was, was indeed called to suffer. And uh, in the Old Testament said it over and over again. And when, when Jesus first tells Peter that he was going to suffer, remember, Peter doesn't have room to think. He can't, can't understand it at all. 
He takes him aside and says, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Christ says, get thee behind me, Satan. Well, I didn't really mean to preach on this particular point of the creeds, uh, but Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The whole book of Jonah is a foreshadowing of Christ. He was, as Jesus says publicly during his ministry, as Jonah was three days in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will be three days in the belly of the earth. And that he appeared to Peter or Cephas and then to the twelve. And then Paul goes on to say, which was not part of the creed, that at last of all he appeared to Paul. But the creeds were part of, of all creeds are, are godly people, uh, teachers, people anointed to teach and lead and live a godly life, coming together in concert to say, what are the most important things that we must know to stay within the bounds of Christ? That's all creeds are. And creeds were part of the worship of the early church from less than a decade after the resurrection, we know for sure. In other words, while the apostles were still alive, they're part of the apostolic New Testament way of life. You can't say that you're a biblical following Christian or Bible-believing Christian and be against reciting creeds as part of the first day of the week. It's, it's, it's an incongruity. Does that make, I hope you understand that. And it's kind of interesting that if you understand, as the creeds developed and came into some of their uh, best statements, you know, some of the best creeds uh, developed by the 4th century, the, the Nicene Creed. No one knows exactly when the Apostles' Creed took the, the you know, it started as, in the third century. No one knows when it took it the, the form we have it in today. That might have been as late as the sixth to eighth century. But the Nicene Creed is in the same form as we've had since the fourth century. And it was church leaders coming together to, to face threats to the church. Remember Paul says to the Ephesian elders in his last visit there in Acts, he says, savage wolves will rise from within you, from amongst you, and not sparing the flock. And so one in the, in the second century, the greatest danger to the church began to be ideas that, uh, that, that there was two, of course, two great dangers to the church in the second and third century and the fourth century, ideas from within the church that threatened to undermine the foundation of truth in Christ. And the second idea was pressures from without the church, the persecution of the Roman Empire. So the creeds were, were actually developed as a response to heresies that were, that were denying the deity of Christ or the manhood of Christ or that he, he was eternally the Son of God or some any of these very important truths. And, so, and all the creeds were, the creeds effectively stamped those out. At the time of the first council of Nicaea, Athanasius was just a young leader in the church. And... Uh, he later went on to write a book called On the Incarnation, which should be must-reading for every Christian. And uh, later, uh, the uh, Athanasius uh, was, was kind of the dominant cleric at the, at the Second Council of Nicaea. Uh, 
But during that period of time, there was a threat to the church called Arianism. And Arianism became so profound in the church that it threatened to wipe out Christianity, period. So the saying became Athanasius Contramundum, which means Athanasius against the world. It seemed at times that this Athanasius was the one person still standing up for the great truths that the apostles had taught us, the great truths of the New Testament. And the creeds not only confronted the greatest threat to the, to the church in its history, they abolished it, they wiped it out, they demolished it. And if you study uh, church history, take a good class on church history or read a good survey of church history, a good portion of what you'll study in the second, third, and fourth century are the various heresies like docetism and Arianism and Manichaeanism and so forth, uh, the monetists that, 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 that attacked the faith and how the creeds were used by God to establish the boundaries of the true faith. And all they were is concise statements of what the apostles and the New Testament had always taught. Of course, another one of the greatest creeds is called the symbol of Chalcedon. So, and you should be familiar with it and read it and understand it. We, we recited it once at our church, but we decided it's a little long. It's a little difficult for reciting in comparison to the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. But um, uh, I'm, I'm saying all this to say this, that in the 19th century, when the pietistic movement began to, to uh, birth what became after the Civil War became uh, modern, the modern evangelical fundamental movement, there was this idea that if we are going to be uh, dependent on the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit, we can't have uh, a laid out liturgy in our service. We have to be free to move as the Holy Spirit leads. So we're not gonna have communion every week. We're not gonna take the creeds, say the creeds regularly. Uh, we're, we're gonna be led by the Spirit. Well, when that idea developed, exactly coincides. If you, if you look at the development of all the modern cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, um, the, the, the Way International, the Moonies, uh, any of these cults that have developed Christian science, they all developed after the 1830s and especially in the late 1800s. Uh, and they have the same ideas as the creed, as the, as the cults of the second and third century. They're exactly the same teachings with a different label. And the creeds were used to smash those teachings. Now, you will not necessarily come to Christ if you grow up in a tradition saying the Nicene Creed every week. But if you start to have spiritual experience, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. Everyone who comes to Christ goes through a season where they start thinking about their sin or about eternal things or loved ones they've lost, whatever gets you started thinking about God is actually God drawing you. And when you're in that process, usually the first person who gets to you is where you'll end up. You'll end up a Jehovah's Witness if the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons are more aggressive evangelistically unless you have some good anchors why you don't end up in, in those false teachings. Which, the, you know, those false teachings are not some light thing. Jesus said, unless you believe I am, you shall die in your sins. John 8, 54. In other words, if you don't believe in the deity of Christ, you can't be saved. 
you know, J John uh, taught us in his series on Acts, he taught us one of the four different points that the apostolic gospel always has. One of them was the exclusivity of Christ. Now, I don't mean to be a hard guy, but Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, the word of God is a sword, and when the sword a sword comes down, it cuts the meat, it cuts whatever it's cutting, and you got to be on one side or the other. There's no middle ground when a sword comes down. When the word of God goes forth, you either, unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. And what the creeds do is make sure that more people will find themselves to find their way to orthodox expressions of the body of Christ. Does that make sense? I, I, that's probably the, the I've ta talked about these kind of ideas before, but that's probably the most fully I've ever developed it. Um, hmm. Let's uh, let's go for uh, sacraments. Now it's kind of an interesting controversy because people are still battling the the battles of the Reformation all the time, which I I just think let's drop that and try to find what is it in common we're saying and to see if there's any middle ground. And I'm just proposing this middle ground. Protestants say there are two sacraments. Catholics say there are seven sacraments. But Protestants will use the word covenant ordinances for the others. And um, uh, the, the truth of the matter is that's what a sacrament means. Uh, all covenants in the Bible, God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. In essence, although we can talk about the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, uh, and so forth, and, uh, did I say the Mosaic covenant? I don't uh, And all the way through to the new covenant, in Hebrews 13, 22, it talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. The new covenant is an eternal covenant that God was unfolding. Like, like uh, Galatians tells us, when anyone... Uh, puts down a covenant you cannot add provisions or change provisions or so forth except by the agreement of the author and so forth in both parties so god is a covenant making and covenant keeping god and he has been revealing the covenant of jesus christ the new covenant from all eternity in all of these other covenants foreshadow and 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 fold into and 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 develop and and spell out the new covenant now, uh, this is important because all you need to understand something about covenant. All covenants have ceremonies of enactment and reenactment. Okay, you, you should memorize that, by the way. You should be able to walk around saying, you know, all covenants have, this is something we don't understand in our culture. Just look at our divorce rate if you think we understand and how, how much litigation there is in our, litigation is suing someone for a breach of covenant. And we, uh, we are not a covenant people. You know what I, the truth of the matter is when I'm discipling someone, what I'm hoping to develop is the kind of character in them whereby I could honestly say that person is a, is a covenantal person. They're a person of the covenant. The covenants of God direct their every motive, thought, attitude, and, and deed. That's really what, what I hope for. So with that in mind, let's, let's just use the idea of matrimony. Matrimony is a cut. You can call it a covenant ordinance if you don't want to be Catholic, but it means a sacrament. 
And it simply is this. Now, God has ordained both the civil authority and the church authority. And there's nothing in the Bible that says that if you that if you, marriage took part before the civil authority, that it still wasn't a covenant ordained by God. And, um, and therefore, that's why Jesus says in Matthew 19 that God hates divorce. He's actually just quoting out of, uh, I guess, Malachi. Is it? Yeah. So, uh, matrimony is entered into by a covenant ceremony. And guess what? That's why the marriage bed needs to be undefiled because the sexual intimacy between a husband and wife is the reenactment of that covenant. All covenants have ceremonies of enactment and reenactment. There have probably been some marriages where someone got in an accident and they were paralyzed or something like that that uh, had a good marriage without a good sexual life. But it's probably a pretty rare thing. So the, um, there, you, there's, there are probably some good Christians who don't attend uh, the Lord's Day faithfully and regularly uh, and, and, sell it, and, and declare the creeds uh, before the, the, the throne of God and before the angels and the demons and the, all the saints of all, of all eternity and take the Lord's Supper in his presence, doing this in remembrance of him and so forth. But I doubt there's many Christians that, that are really solid Christians who don't do those kind of things. So now I would just say that that yes, I I'm, I want you to understand we are probably more a Protestant church than we certainly aren't necessarily considered Roman Catholic. So some of these we would have infused with a little different meaning. For instance, confession, uh, which is called in the Catholic Church reconciliation. Now that was after Vatican II, but it still goes, like I often say, almost everything you'll find in the ancient liturgical churches, the Anglicans, the Lutherans, the Roman Catholics, and the Eastern Orthodox, all of them have their roots in biblical practice. Some of them have lost some of the centrality of their meaning and, and the focus on Christ and other, other things, but they still had some roots in biblical practice. And the truth of the matter is, James said, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And that should be regular passion. Now, to be clear, for purposes of discussion, where we would differ from the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglican Church is we would not say there's a special class of priest because we would endorse the priesthood of all believers, a basic idea of the Reformation and a basic idea of the early church, of the ancient apostolic church. The idea that... Uh, only ordained clergy were mediators is, is began in around the fourth century in in both the east and the west and uh you know it it i don't want to go into the depths of the discussion the the two positions are not as far apart as you may think they are but the truth truth is we would emphasize you are a priest before god and you need to confess your sins to another priest before god now i would recommend someone wiser more stable, more mature, someone recognized by other people in the church is having that. Uh, but one of the things that I often say to people is Jason and John and I have very different personalities. And very. And some people find it much easier to talk to Jason and, and John than to me. I cannot understand why. But, uh, 
<laughs> but, uh, and you don't have to talk to one of the elders all the time. You know, one of the things that several of the single brothers do is that I, I they tell me about is that, you know, they'll, they'll uh, this one and that one will confess their sins to one another and they pray for each other and so forth. And I wouldn't have time for all that, to be honest. So I'm really glad they do that. I, I know about six or eight of the single guys who talk to each other about their devotions and how, and hopefully, you know, I was praying for Cotty's household this week, and I, I'm hoping that'll develop in her household, you know, that they confess, well, I wasn't very faithful of my devotions this week. Would you pray for me? Now, that's a sacrament. That's something holy. That's a, that, because repentance, confession of sins and repentance is actually, a, is how we came into the covenant of Christ in the first place. So you can't, you can't receive Christ unless you confess your sins, renounce your sins, and make him Lord and Savior and repent, turn toward, away from sin toward God. And guess what? You need to receive Christ not in a sense of being regenerated again, but in the sense of being renewed in him, of, of restoring fellowship. Re, you know, relationships just don't remain that good if people don't spend time with each other. You know, I'm looking forward today. We have a an annual tradition that around this time of the year, we get together to celebrate uh, Catherine and Carla's birthdays, and we have a family meal and dinner together and so forth. And you you have to do that or you'll drift apart. So confession, is it a sacrament? I'd say so. I just, I wouldn't say that we practice it the same way that some of the higher church traditions do, but you must practice it. You cannot walk with Christ if you don't practice confessing your sins to one another. You may be religious and you may still keep going to church, but you won't be right with God if you're not regularly, if you don't have a, con a confessor. Now, I recommend that you have more than one, like some of the single guys do a good job of in, in our church. They'll tell me, well, I was confessing my lack of devotions or whatever. This I had this bad attitude or what have you to one another, and then we prayed for each other, and great. That's really cool. That has to keep going. Well, I don't want to go into all of them, but I hope you can see even healing. You know, there's a thing that the Catholics do called uh, uh, final unction. Um, I mean, what's the, does anyone know the more proper name for it? Um, what's that? Extreme unction. And uh, that's when a priest will come and anoint you before you're supposed to die. First of all, I would acknowledge the priesthood of all believers. And secondly, I would acknowledge that it grew out of God's command to heal. It doesn't always have to be an elder. I love the testimony of my friend Jeff Jeffries. He, his mom woke him up for school once, uh, one morning in his senior year, and he was, um, he had had a brain aneurysm in the night, and she couldn't wake him up. And they rushed him to the hospital, and they found out a, blood, a vessel had exploded in his brain. And with much sadness, they hooked him up to, you know, to life support systems that kept his heart beating and kept his lungs going, and they just said, well, you know, his brain is functionally dead, and he, uh, if if we we can keep him going on these life support systems, but um, but if he ever does wake up out of a coma, he might not ever come out of a coma, and if he does, 
his brain will be somewhat in a vegetative state or won't be functioning very well. And we suggest that you might want to consider going ahead and letting him die. Well, there was a brother in the, in the Assemblies of God church that they belonged to up in Inglewood at the time who just had a word from God that, that he wasn't going to die. And this guy, they you know, they got the word out through various prayer changes and lots of Christians of different kinds of persuasions were praying for him. But this one brother heard very clearly from the Lord that this was not God's will. And so he came and he told the parents, he's not going to die. Uh, don't take him off the, and I'm going to stay here and pray until he wakes up. And he, uh, hours later, I, I forget exactly if it was a day or a few hours or whatever, but he woke up. And then they said he'd, ne he'd never be able to think again. But gradually his brain, he had to go through a lot of therapy and so forth, but his, his brain started returning to him. And uh, little by little, God healed him. One of the, and each of them were almost, each of them were separate healings. You know, the Bible, when it talks about gifts of the Spirit, it always uses gifts, plural, and healings, plural, when talking about healing. Both the gifts and the healings are plural. And uh, one of the most dramatic healings that he had is he couldn't talk or sing at all anymore. And um, he went to, there was this uh, Choir of the Fire kind of youth conference thing that he, that, he, that he went to. And this was six months or a year after this aneurysm. And he still, he still can't, to this day, he can only see like one half of the field of vision, not because of his eyes, but because of the way the eyes or the brain processes the, the data. And, uh, but at this, at this concert, uh, he's, he's, had not been able to sing at, at all. He could only make like these really weird squeaks and stuff, uh, kind of like my singing, but, uh, no. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, by the way, you know what? I'm following that clock, and I have a feeling that clock is not working right because it's been on the same time for a long time. Oh, okay. Can somebody give me that phone? Tony, would you toss me that phone? And I can. We need to get that clock fixed, to get a new clock because that keeps changing all the time. So, um, you know, actually during the week, Jason, that's like 20 to 30 minutes behind half the time. I don't know why, but it seems to be. Um, which I'd much prefer it to be 20 or 30 minutes behind. No, anyway, I'll, I'll just finish this part of the testimony. But he was in this crowd, and the Lord led him. He felt the Holy Spirit wanted him to go in the back. And it's, I mean, this is thousands of people in an outdoor thing. And he went way back where he wouldn't be embarrassed. And he felt like the Lord said, start to sing before me. And his testimony is that he went, ah, 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 like this. And all of a sudden, his voice started coming back, and he began to sing. And his, by within a half an hour of doing this, his voice, he wasn't squeaking or cracking anymore. He was singing. And today he's a worship leader of one of my favorite churches in our area. Uh, you know, isn't that awesome? You know, the truth of the matter is, is that healing happens through the body of Christ by the Spirit of God, by a word that God, and it is a sacrament. Um, it's just not extreme unction exactly. Anyway, I'm at least trying to find some middle ground. Uh, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to allow that. Intolerable cruelty. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep going. Um, let, let me talk about models of biblical leadership. Number nine. 
we you will hear a lot about the fivefold ministry apostles prophets evangelists shepherds and teachers as listed in Ephesians 4:11 i prefer to look at it as the sevenfold ministry adding 1 Corinthians 12:28 uh, and through 30 uh, helps in administrations. But one of the, we are when I finish, the, I'm going to spend about two more weeks on this uh, church thing and and, uh, and the different aspects that we need to be restored. And uh, uh, but when I do after that, I'm going to do a gift series. And one of the most confused subjects in the church today is is gifts, because there are different kinds of gifts, and you need to you need to fully understand when you're thinking about gifts what particular gifts you're thinking about and for people will always will say well you have your gift of being an evangelist and but i have my gift of uh prophecy and i and and sally has the gift of love well anytime i hear something like that i realize they need to hear my gift series <laughs> because the truth of the matter is is love is only a gift in the sense that life itself is a gift from God. Uh, regeneration is a gift from God. Grace is an ongoing set of gifts from God that produce the fruits of the Spirit. So you could say, you know, love is a fruit of the Spirit and a commandment of God. But you could say, in a sense, it's a result of a series of God's good gifts. But primarily in the New Testament, there are three categories of gifts, spiritual gifts, ministry gifts or service gifts and um, gifts of temperament or motivation and the service gifts are apostles prophets evangelists shepherds teachers helps and administrations and those gifts everyone has a calling to some of those gifts and God can add to them as you grow grow older in the Lord someone who uh, might be more of a teacher uh, shepherd kind of person might develop the gift of, a, of evangelism by the grace of God if that's God's will and direction in their life. Generally, I uh, honestly believe that apostles are people who have the other, have, have had a journey through the other service gifts in such a way as they've been equipped in all of them and they know how to nurture and bring forth people in, their, in each of the other spiritual are the uh, of the service gifts now the reason i like calling them service gifts is we have this whole idea about ministry in america where they're like what's your ministry and uh like some flattering thing well we do take identity from where we serve in the body of christ i don't want to belittle that nevertheless the call is to employ our gifts in serving one another and the highest gift you know the highest character quality is to serve that's why actually uh one of the ancient traditions the anglican tradition uh has a, a thing where that when you are ordained into the ministry everyone is ordained as a deacon first and that's really one something i like to do even can't whenever possible we didn't have a chance to actually ordain jason and, and john as deacons in our church before they were elders but the truth is they functioned as deacons for quite some time before they, as they gradually functioned more and more as elders. And, uh, you know, Jason is gifted 
with the gift of administration beyond what, frankly, John and I are. We're not as good at that as he is. That's why he's getting an MBA, and we're not. So, <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, you know, we each, we each have different functions and giftedness, but the gifts are just to be employed in serving. And as you learn to serve, then you'll be re released more fully into other things. That's why Paul says that anyone who has served faithfully as a deacon attains a great status in the faith. Um, the greatest is a servant. You never outgrow that. It's just that the way you serve changes as the person develops more gifts. You might serve more in the word Unless, uh, you know, in joint compounding. Uh, that's what that's what Caleb's praying for. But uh, <laughs> but uh, we were joint compounding yesterday, and we both agreed at the end of it, there's nothing worse than standing joint compound, um, except for insulation. So, uh, but, you know, you never outgrow the need to serve. So I'll at least just say that about the service gifts. Um, there is no special class of priest in the Bible. We are all priests. But there are pr those seven service gifts. And uh, all priests of the Lord, which is our everyone in the body of Christ, is called to function in, in some of the seven service gifts. And uh, we'll end with that today. <laughs>